0: it is important that people should be able to hear me at the back. Could you indicate that you can? Pro Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, shortly after the announcement of my election to this chair, my wife was dining at an educational establishment more than 25 miles from here. A fellow diner thinking to make a civil introduction called across the anarchic din of high table to one who sat opposite, a distinguished guest from overseas. Her husband is Oxford's new professor of poetry, But the distinguished visitor, perhaps momentarily unnerved by the cacophony through which British academics make festive small talk, misheard. Professor of perjury, he exclaimed. Professor of perjury? What will he say to his students? (laughs) My wife vouches for the truth of this occurrence, but of course it is also much too good to be true. It has the stuff of fable, a timeless relevance, like old King Cole like Canute's rebuking the tide, but how few read that lesson as the king intended. Some in the audience will be saying, though not necessarily sotto voce, but poetry is perjury. What we're after is not so much poetry's use of perjury as a theme. There is perjury in Dante, in Shakespeare's histories, particularly in Richard II and Richard III. We're not so much after those thematic applications as the confession by a poet preferably in English that the very exercise of the craft is itself perjured. Shakespeare's sonnets provide a wide range of implication for I have sworn thee fair more perjured I to swear against the truth so foul a lie 102: therefore I lie with her and she with me and in our faults by-lies, we flattered be. 138. For why should others' false, adulterous eyes give salutation to my sportive blood? 121. Lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame. Hundred and twenty nine. Ah, thank you so much. And the final one those lines that I have writ before do lie. Thank you. One might hazard. That Shakespeare's sonnets in their entirety exist as if on the rack, or constitute a kind of rack, so that the most fervent statements of love's fealty are put to the question. I am quibbling, of course. The frame of a sonnet is not at all like the frame of a rack and blurted confession, if it is to endure as poetry, must not in actuality be blurted as though by an average on-the-spot interviewee. All the phrases that I have so far quoted from Shakespeare's sonnets are supremely self-possessed in their eloquence and can see the rhyme-word coming. For I have sworn thee fair, more perjured I, to swear against the truth so foul a lie. Do poets approach language as the neutral instrument for confessional themes, on occasion themes of perjury? Or do they in the very act of writing manifestly reveal language itself, particularly language twisted into poetic shapes, as a substance of imagination, radically perjured Two poems (coughs) separated by some three and a half centuries constitute evidence underpinning the second question The first instance again is from Shakespeare's sonnets number 111 And almost thence my nature is subdued to what it works in like the dyer's hand. Pity me then and wish I were renewed whilst like a willing patient I will drink potions of ISIL against my strong infection. Let me check again. Is this still getting through to you at the back? Is it all right there? Is it getting there all right? Thank you. Well, I do apologise for this... <coughs> ..stupid, stupid infection. <clears throat> In that particular case, I mean my chest, not poetics. (laughs) Catherine Duncan-Jones, in her admirable Arden edition of the sonnets, glosses that last (coughs) section. As the dyer's hand is stained by dye, so is the speaker's nature by his public occupation Insofar as Shakespeare's occupation was writing rather than acting, his own hand could also be imagined as darkened with ink. This is unarguably correct as far as it goes, but it could be taken farther. My strong infection derives from Latin inficere, to dye, tinge, colour, stain, sense one be to impregnate or imbue with some qualifying substance or active principle as poison or salt, to taint. Shakespeare declares his nature his dyer's hand, to be somewhat more than superficially stained with ink from his quill. The dyer's hand is a deeply infected hand by the simple necessity of doing its work. There is something implicated in the nature that writes which is participant, even to an exaggerated degree, with what one can only call original sin. This is a deeply pessimistic view, many would say anachronistic, but it is a view which was by no means unique to the author of these magnificent sonnets, the fact that Auden, having rediscovered his Christianity, took the phrase, the Dyer's Hand, as the title of a major volume of critical essays, speaks to this point. It is these writings especially, done I suppose was such another, that one sees how technique and ethos can be minutely correlated. What technique and ethos have to work with <coughs> is in Shakespeare's case a formal moral dichotomy such as one finds expressed in Philip Sidney's An Apology for Poetry, a work grounded in its author's Calvinism. Sith our erected wit maketh us know what perfection is and yet our infected will keepeth us from reaching unto it. I love that so much I'll read it again. <clears throat> Sith our erected wit makes us know what perfection is and yet our infected will keepeth us from reaching unto it. Seems to me one of the crucial literary theological statements um, of that period of the 16th century. Certain of Shakespeare's sonnets, including all those from which I have quoted, strike us both as the demonstration of infected will which uses the particular vehicle of erected wit, that is to say, the solid structure. And it is also the indissoluble union of the one with the other. It is the marriage of true minds, in the sense that topos must be of one being with technic, thought is to be made manifest in structure but the truth of those minds in this particular technico-ethical nexus is made consummate in the recognizing of mutual contamination. Professor Duncan Jones has a memorable phrase about Shakespeare's romances. She speaks of his writing speeches for traumatized old men. I am a traumatized old man and my opinions on the matter of poetry in English particularly contemporary poetry are decidedly peculiar. I do not have any great desire To encourage the the presence of contemporary writing in the university. Because I believe that contemporary poetry already receives far more encouragement than is good for it. (laughs) As to outreach, if one of the as yet unknown great poets of the new millennium is already out there working as an instructor or lab technician in south park's road crossroad she knows who she is and what she is and is able to judge her unique excellence Without our help, and her absence from this and subsequent of my lectures is due not to diffidence but to justifiable contempt. (laughs) This seems the proper place to add. that during the tenure of this office I shall recuse myself from reading any of my own work within the university. I am painfully aware that this chair is widely regarded as a position of privilege and influence and to be thought to use it as a means of promoting my own poetry before a captive audience would be to me abhorrent. What I cannot avoid giving you is a sense of my own poetics together with evidence that I am setting these within their historical context. It seems to me allowable to display animus in what one says, provided that the causes and the growth and the limitations of that spirit are conscientiously provided by the lecturer. It is now some minutes since I referred to a poem described by me as much more of our own time, but that also takes as a given the entanglement of poetry and perjury. It is by the Bukovinian Jew, Paul Celan, 1920 1970. A survivor who wrote in German. Already you see the problem. I shall read the first stanza in the original followed by two English translations. Wegebeizt vom Strahlen Wind deiner Sprache das bünte Gerät des Anerlebten das hundertsingige mein Gedicht das Genicht Michael Hamburger's translation etched away from the rayshot wind of your language the garish talk of rubbed-off experience, the hundred-tongued pseudo poem, the noem, Pierre Yoris, eroded by the beam wind of your speech, the gaudy chatter of the pseudo experienced, my hundred-tongued perjury poem. The Noem. Stellan is characteristically forming neologisms from common ancient roots. He is playing or perhaps interfering with the German noun Meinheit, which means perjury, and which by chance begins with mine, my. So Joris's My Perjury Poem has the edge on Hamburg's Pseudo-Poem. Genischt differs by only one letter from Gedischt poem, but contains the German negative Nicht, and both translators Use an effective coinage, noem, that differs by only one letter from poem, but is the total negation of it. Shakespeare coins words, uses irregular syntax. The sonnets are not devoid of an excess of feeling we might wish to term hysteria, but the poem of Ceylon has been conceived semantically and syntactically as the ultimate machinery of hysteria. I do not intend that term to be understood petratively, one could use it dispassionately to describe elements in the work of some of the outstanding European and American poets of the 20th century. In addition to Celan himself, we could take account of Hart Crane and John Berriman, USA, Zbigniew Herbert and Alexander Watt, Poland T.S. Eliot offers a unique case the Prufrock volume and the Wasteland invent what has been later and in a different context termed an expressive form for hysteria still okay? consider. On Margate Sands I can connect nothing with nothing. This means simultaneously. I cannot connect anything with anything. Literally, I'm having a breakdown, help. And I can do the impossible, like squaring the circle. This is potentially as disruptive of reason while superimposing a superior raison d'etre as is Ceylan's invention of mein Gedicht das Genicht. The difference between the great early and middle period poems and the post-war plays of Eliot is that in these plays he is merely the flaneur voyeur of the hysteria of trivial people, whom he lets off the hook, with the possible exception of Celia Copleston, by dissolving each crisis into the conventions of West End theatre, matinee theatre. In the case of Celia Copleston, it is himself, he lets off the hook. R.P. Blackmore, R.P. Blackmore, was one of the two finest American literary critics of last century. The other was Lionel Trillium. Hugh Kenner and Harry Levin were better scholars than was Blackmore. But none could show better than he the actual dimensions of the made thing. It is from Blackmoor that I take the notion of hysteria as a working precept for assessing and evaluating poetry of last century. And this, or indeed poetry of earlier periods, think of Croshaw, smart, Cooper, the term expressive form is also blackness. There is very little original in what I have to say. Except that as a poet of the secular millennium, I have a concern with original sin itself which must place me among a marginalia of weirdos. I have to say at once that I differ from Blackmoor as to the justice of his main conclusion in the essay from which I lift this key word hysteria. But it is not possible to develop my defence of D.H. Lawrence, whom he is attacking, within the present context. It would not have been pop- possible even had I not succumbed to laryngitis. <clears throat> the Liars' Quincy, did Auden call it? <clears throat> I take, then, I confess out of context an observation from the same Blackmore essay on Lawrence. He says, I confess... Uh, so, I'm sorry. Here, he says, here again, <clears throat> the broken burden of honesty is translated or lost in the condition of ritual of formal or declarative prayer and mystical identification, which is indeed a natural end for emotions of which the sustaining medium is hysteria. Blackmore is not opposed to poetry that is quasi-liturgical or otherwise ritualistic. He thinks highly of Ash Wednesday, but he challenges that poetry in which the liturgical element acts as a subterfuge or a diversion from an anarchy of spirit that ought to have been expressed in its own destructive or catatonic terms. But he also believes expressive form to be the plague affecting the poetry of the last 150 years. Now, this essay was written in the early 1930s. He must, therefore, wishes to regard Lawrence as a late and not entirely effectual manifestation of Sturm und Drang. I maintain, nonetheless... that Blackmoor, together with Trilling, represents the finest aspects of American literary criticism in the 20th century. Why? Why? Because even in his harshest judgments and misjudgments, there is a form of love. A sense that to seek to penetrate the mystery of why and how works of literature succeed or fail is to do work of inestimable value. Here he is reviewing Robert Lowell's first collection the Limited Cummington Press edition, Land of Unlikeness, 1944. He says, There is not a loving meter in this book. What is thought of as Boston in him fights with what is thought of as Catholic and the fight produces not a tension, but a gritting. It is not the violence, the rage, the denial of this world that grits, but the failure of these to find in verse the tension of necessity failure of these to find in verse the tension of necessity. How could any young poet, Lowell was then 27, how could any young poet not rejoice in the severity of such a judgment? issuing from such a quality of mind. The very rigour proclaims Lowell's significance. His book merits the expenditure of this amount of inventiveness of phrase upon it. It is worthy of the severest scrutiny the achievement of a major poem requires a form of cooperation between the impetus of creativity and the reciprocity and receptiveness of an equal intelligence. Donald Carn Ross's The Ontological Reader The greatest tragedy of the last 60 years has been the extinction of the ontological reader, at least in any public domain which would or could affect the moral aesthetics of of the nation. I'm sure they exist in private, I'm sure they do, but they don't find their way into the review sections of the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Times. And it is a tragedy. What I would call the high period of American literary criticism lasted at a rough estimate from about 1925 to 1965. There has been nothing since that even remotely approaches such a reach and measure. The inspiration is almost certainly Eliot, The Sacred Wood. In the preface to the second 1928 edition of that work, Eliot wrote, We can only say that a poem in some sense has its own life, that its parts form something quite different, from a body of neatly ordered biographical data. That the feeling or emotion or vision resulting from the poem is something different from the feeling or emotion or vision in the mind of the poet. Let us agree that Eliot's weakest phrase Is feeling or emotion or vision resulting from the poem? Because we are reluctant to conceive the effectiveness of a poem as a mere aftertaste of itself, as a fine vintage might yield its aftertaste to a connoisseur of wines. There used to be a man, I looked him up every year, there used to be a man in Who's Who, who under recreations put fine wines and conversation with intelligent women... (laughs) What he, what not, no, no, not the man in the. Uh, no, no, no. whom so I assure you. <clears throat> what uh, Eliot and we are looking for, again in one of his own phrases, is made perfectly justly significant emotion. Emotion which has its life in the poem. And not in the history of the poet. The emotion of art is impersonal, and the poet cannot reach this impersonality without surrendering himself wholly to the work to be done. This is finely said, and must have been the mainspring. Of much that subsequent American poet critics such as Alan Tate and R.P. Blackmore and John Crow Ransom discovered in themselves to say. Blackmore solves Eliot's problem with a magisterial formulation, but he could not have done this if Eliot had not shown what the problem was. Blackmore wrote in 1935, and I regard it as one of the great modern, or modernist formulations of what poetry is. The art of poetry, he says, is amply distinguished from the manufacture of verse by the animating presence of a fresh idiom, language so twisted and posed in a form that it not only expresses the matter in hand, but adds to the stock of available reality. My God, if only I could have written that. <laughs> the art of poetry is amply distinguished from the manufacture of verse by the animating presence of a fresh idiom. Language so twisted and posed in a form that it not only expresses the matter in hand, but adds to the stock. Of available reality. Something is there that was not there. This is so to speak the formulation ultimately derivative from Eliot but capping his perception that the post-wasteland, post-sacred, wood neophyte generation stood in need of. And truly it succeeds by the placing of two verbs, twisted and posed. Twisted, which does what it describes, giving a new twist to the way the perspective is perceived. Posed, to indicate that it is not ultimately a matter of distortion, but of accurate placing. Earlier in the lecture, using Sidney's powerful distinction, I tried to explain how I saw meaning as an inextricable part of the structure in a Shakespearean sonnet. Certain of Shakespeare's sonnets I wrote strike us as both the demonstration of infected will by erected wit, that is to say, in his case, the sonnet structure, but also the indissoluble union of the one with the other. If the poet succeeds, if the poet succeeds. All the impersonality that Eliot desiderates is there objectified by the strenuosity of the maker's inventiveness If I were to offer anything to the conventional young poet apart from the proverbial revolver and a bottle of brandy, (laughs) I would say don't try to be sincere don't try to express your inmost feelings but do try to be inventive it's high time that I... all right <clears throat> it's high time that i return to those hypothetical members of the audience and to their instinctive response that poetry is perjury. Is it, though, in anything but a figurative sense the OED supplies instances both of the legal definition and of various quasi-metaphorical applications strictly and forgive my pedantry, strictly perjury is the crime of willfully uttering a false statement or testimony in reference to a matter material to the issue involved, while under an oath or affirmation to tell the truth administered by a competent authority, the willful utterance of false evidence while on oath. It was extended by Thomas More in his anti-Lutheran polemics to include the breaking of a vow or solemn undertaking. In his case, especially the vow to obey papal authority. But both Catholics and Lutherans used it in this sense. For Lutherans, it was the betrayal of conscience to papal authority. In Romeo and Juliet, circa 1592, it became a bittersweet conceit. At lovers' perjuries, they say, Jove laughed. But in Richard III, before he's murdered, The Duke of Clarence describes his accusatory self-accusatory nightmare, in which he is twice confronted by menacing spirits, twice convicting him of perjury. I take it that this is Thomas More's breaking of a vow or solemn undertaking. If treason can be regarded as a form of perjury, one piece of doggerel is to be recorded which in the reign of Richard III, brought its author to the terrible death imposed for high treason, that is to say, hanging, disembowelling and quartering. It is recorded in the major mid-16th century compilation, The Mirror for Magistrates, 1559, in which it forms the 23rd tragedy How Collingbourne was cruelly executed for making a foolish rhyme. The rhyme was, the cat, the rat, and Lovell, our dog, do rule all England under a hog. The hog being Richard, the cat, Catisby or Catesby, the rat, Ratcliffe, and Dog, Lovell, being co-conspirators with Richard in his reign of terror. There is some significance in the short prose introduction, cast in the form of a dialogue around the question whether a mere poem, which is but feigning, can be judged as sufficiently real to be indicted by law. But where, as you say, a poet may feign where he list, Indeed me think it should be so, And ought to be well taken of the hearers, But it hath not at all times been so allowed. For here followeth the story That one called Collingbourne Was cruelly put to death for making of a rhyme. Why am I so drawn to split hairs in this way? It stems from the need I have long felt to establish the reality of the true poem. Needless to say, my vision of the true poem corresponds more to Wyatt's they flee from me that sometime did me seek than to collingbourne's foolish rhyme. Wyatt's case is pertinent. He was a diplomat poet at the court of Henry VIII, the reciprocally affectionate protégé of Thomas Cromwell, dogged by slanders of the most legal kind, whose poems do on occasion speak directly of treasonable matters, Such is his great lament for the deaths of those of his friends alleged to be Anne Boleyn's lovers. He was not, however, indicted for the reality of his poems, but for knowing the wrong people at the wrong time and for alleged misdemeanours in the course of his diplomatic missions. So how did I come to be where now I am? It is because some 35 years ago, I happened upon the work of the Oxford philosopher J.L. Austin, who, together with A.J. Eyre, was the leading <laughs> philosophical tastemaker of the 1950s. <clears throat> and in so doing, I read this. And I might mention that quite differently again, we could be issue any, any of these utterances, as we could issue an utterance of any kind whatsoever, in the course, for example, of acting a play, or or making a joke, or writing a poem. In which case, of course, it will not be seriously meant, and we should not be able to say that we seriously performed the act concerned. I have come reluctantly to admit that basically, Austin is probably right and that a poem is not real in the way that a railway notice is real. What I objected to excessively, I now think, was the cunning with which Austin structured his contempt. How in the quoted passage, writing a poem follows not acting a play, which would be an appropriate sequence, but making a joke, But the bridle at this is the bridle at inessentials and ushers us one into the absurdities of reaction. Josef Mandelstam died in 1938 en on route to a gulag because of a private party he recited a squib which he had written against Stalin and someone of the party betrayed him. But that fact does not constitute the reality of Mandelstam's poetry. Towards the end of his life, Pasternak was sometimes asked by members of the audience to to recite his translation of Shakespeare's 66th sonnet. But this fact, powerful and poignant though it is, does not constitute the reality of that poem. Tired with all these, for restful death I cry, as to behold desert a beggar born, and needy nothing trimmed in jollity, and purest faith unhappily forsworn, and gilded honour shamefully misplaced, and maiden virtue rudely strumpeted, and right perfection wrongfully disgraced, and strength by limping sway disabled and art made tongue-tied by authority and folly doctor-like controlling skill and simple truth miscalled simplicity and captive good attending captain ill tired with all these from these would I be gone save that to die, I leave my love alone. This sonnet has in its main body ten lines of parallel recitation, and needy nothing, and purest face, and gilded honour, and maiden virtue, and right perfection, and strong by, and art made, and folly, and simple truth, and captive good. These constitute an elementary exercise in rhetorical figuration called by the technicians anaphora. The sequence that Shakespeare makes of this elementary rhetoric is, in fact, a form of recoil and recoup, an utterance of defeated disgust that is simultaneously. A mode of resilient attack, a sense, ah, not this, not this, what, and yet more, indivisible from. Thus I indict them, thus I give utterance to a list of charges drawn up against a callous and meretricious social nexus. How do you paraphrase that? You don't. You hear it. You hear it if you're an ontological reader. The burden of the lines (coughs) is one of impotent disgust. The delivery that the lines make of themselves is forensic in its power of castigation. Then the final couplet, always very difficult in Shakespeare's sonnets. That the malign power of the world remains not to be dispersed or disposed of by a passion of consummate rhetoric is confirmed by the bitter quasi resignation the world-weariness of the final couplet the total effect of this sonnet cannot be paraphrased it can only be delivered by the words and the metrical pulses that itself employs. To quote Blackmore once more, he does not have this poem in his sights, but the words apply. This is one of the great examples of tautology, where things become their own meaning, which is the condition of poetry, however great or narrow the selection of experience may be. Let me propose uh, what I hope is an appropriate analogy of my own, that that moment in Leibniz in the Nouveau's Essay, in which he confronts the Lockeans, (coughs) he says in translation, Thank you. He says, You oppose to me this axiom received by the philosophers that there is nothing in the soul which does not come from the senses, but the soul itself must be accepted and its affections. Nihil est in intellectu, quod non fuerit in senso. Exipae nisi ipse intellectus. Nothing is in the intellect that was not already in the senses, to which I reply, nothing unless it is the intellect itself. That leap of the critical imagination whereby Leibniz transcends a long tradition of neo-Aristotelian fatalism, I see as corresponding to the way in which structure and sense and sensibility coalesce into meaning in Shakespeare's 66th sonnet. It is as though that which was horizontal leaps, even as you pronounce it, into the vertical, or as if non-dimensional thought became three-dimensional, the leap, as I now call it, can take place within one or two words, as in Celan's "Mein Gedicht, das genicht," or indeed in or with one word set into a contextual sequence that we might suppose unable to tolerate it. Take the sestet of Yeats' sonnet, "Leader and the Swan. A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop. Here the Leibnizian word, so to speak, is indifferent. We are quite unprepared for it, because all the preceding words relating to the swan god are words of commanding power, A sudden blow, the great wings beating still, the feathered glory, the strange heart, so mastered by the brute blood of the air. Yet we ought to have been prepared for it, because this is a rape, essentially. There is a necessary post-coital male turning away indifferent without interest or feeling in regard to something unconcerned, unmoved, careless, apathetic, insensible. OED gives a fine example from Charlotte Bronte, Shirley. When people are long indifferent to us, we grow indifferent to their indifference. But indifferent, certainly from 1638 on, also means not particularly good, inferior, rather bad. 1715, the English interest was managed chiefly by two men of a very indifferent reputation. (laughs) So this all-powerful Jupiter is at the same time somewhat shoddy, as we know that he was. And the being that he begat upon Leda was Helen of Troy. And there's a variety of ways of regarding her, some though not all unfattering. And was this momentous, indifferent, awful knowledge of the squalid act, indeed the act whereby a significant portion of divine wisdom was bestowed or betrayed upon the human race. There is a Leibnizian intellect of the word itself and it is the poet's gift and responsibility to release that intellect into the body of the poem so that its effect may permeate the whole. My awareness of this capacity comes not from a remote galaxy but from the work of scholars among whom Professor Stolworthy is preeminent, which examines and collates poets' draft sheets and rejects, and is able to show how the sudden leap of creative attainment from inadequate to consummate takes place. To those who plan to attend this course of lectures, Expecting to hear immediately of the trials and triumphs of British poetry during the first ten years of this century, I can only say, be patient, we shall get there anon, though I may have turned 80 before we do. The craft of poetry is not a spillage but an ingathering. Relevance and accessibility strike me as words of very slight value. I have written elsewhere that accessibility is a perfectly good word if the matter under discussion concerns supermarket aisles, library stacks or public lavatories, but has no proper place in discussion of poetry and poetics poetry of the new millennium is as it is because of what English poetry has been during preceding centuries, and a degree of humility when faced with that fact would not come amiss from our latest celebrities. To put it vulgarly, if Shakespeare's as yet Son yet was found more than adequate, by Pasternak's auditors caught in the vile terror and hypocrisies of the Soviet hegemony it is an affront to justice to have it supposed less than adequate for those caught in the vile hypocrisies of our own savage and canting populism or banker's Olympus as Henry Adams called it I propose, merely as a debating point, if that is what would be preferred, that English poetry, by which I mean poetry written in English, cannot be properly comprehended outside the context of politics, economics and theology in Britain, and the former imperial dominions during the past five to six hundred years. And elements of that context will be considered in the course of 15 lectures. Context is, I concede, rather too passive a term for what is proposed. I would be taking my bearings from the work of such scholar critics as Brian Cummings, who writes, Fouke Greville's Calvinism is often taken for granted, then applied to his poems. In a circular process, the poems are adduced as evidence of his doctrinal beliefs. In either event, the poetry is seen as a passive recipient of doctrine that has already been formulated. However, poetry is an active participant in belief and doctrine, says Cummings. Greville's starkly intellectual verse makes minute adjustments of ideology from stanza to stanza and from line to line, rather than theology happening elsewhere before the poem is made. The poem shows theology in the making. The course that Professor Cummings takes, showing how the structure of the thing not only is inseparable from the thematic burden, but also infiltrates semantically that burden, greatly helps to illuminate English poetry as it is, a living and shifting entity, a creature very like Pope's spider. The spider's touch shall exquisitely find Feels at each thread and lives along the line. Fouke Greville, contemporary of and friend of Philip Sidney, whose life he wrote, was a major minor poet of the late 16th and 17th centuries. Greatly admired as it happens by the 20th century British American poet Tom Gunn who edited a modernised selection for Faber some years ago looking through the text and index of the new Cambridge History of English Poetry, 2010. I could not find a single occurrence of his name. But he's in good company. Also rejected from consideration is the major minor 18th century poet Charles Wesley. Isaac Watts, erratic but splendid at his best, is mentioned once in passing, Now, without the hymnody of Watts and Wesley, and this is looking at the matter in the most basic utilitarian light, one is deprived of an essential part of the spiritual, linguistic and metrical foundation on which Blake built his songs of innocence and of experience. Looked at intrinsically Wesley's hymn, Wrestling Jacob, Like Watts's, God is a name my soul adores, is as fine as smarts, sung to David, or Cooper's the Castaway. God is a name my soul adores, the almighty three, the eternal one, nature and grace with all their powers confess the infinite unknown, Thy voice produce the seas and spheres, Bid the waves roar and planets shine, But nothing like thyself appears Through all these spacious works of thine. Still restless nature dies and grows, From change to change the creatures run, Thy being no succession knows, and all thy vast designs are one how shall affrighted mortals dare to sing thy glory or thy grace beneath thy feet we lie so far and see but shadows of thy face who can behold the blazing light who can approach confused con- damn it Who can approach consuming flame? None but thy wisdom knows thy might. None but thy word can speak thy name. This is Watts. And that is how Blake would have hymned his creator had he been a Calvinist. And surely Blake must have sensed this by his creative finesse is living along the line. Just consider that word dare. How shall affrighted mortals dare to sing thy glory or thy grace, Watts? What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? The postural or pitch of the lines by Watts and Blake seem essentially alike. It is a pitch we recognize as belonging peculiarly to 18th century hymnody. But Blake alters the quality of the verb to dare so that what was used by Watts to focus mortal civility becomes in Blake the sign of something outrageous, outdare in the Godhead itself. The reiterated defence in such a case as this, I mean the Cambridge history, is this, with such a vast field to survey, English poetry from Beowulf to the present, omissions are inevitable, but deeply regrettable. I respond. That out of a thousand and four pages of text, not counting bibliography and index, 120 pages are devoted to poetry from roughly the time of Larkin's death to the present day, something in the order of a quarter century. This seems to me grossly excessive in the circumstances. When did it begin, this fantasy, that the literary scene of today is some kind of national treasure, when what it more resembles is (laughs) landfill. Pro Vice-Chancellor, it's customary for the new incumbent of a university chair, to pay tribute to his distinguished predecessor in office. And this is a custom I am privileged and happy to follow and to perform. My predecessor in office, due to a small local difficulty, (laughs) my predecessor in office was Christopher Ricks, Whose election to this chair was an inspired and inspiring choice. He established his critical preeminence at an early age, and for half a century has worked as scholar and critic in such a way that his achievement will remain as a mark of excellence so long as public coherence remains, which may not be very long. <laughs> He combines the resources gained from a formidable breadth breadth of oh, reading. Oh, God! He combines the resources gained from a formidable breadth of reading. A process begun in early youth, with a wonderful, delicate ear and an exquisite, at times, deadly accuracy of phrase. His placing of his admiration for Eliot's beautiful recognition of the two words, ''Our soldier'' in Charmian's ''Threnos for her dead mistress'' in ''Antony and Cleopatra'' is itself beautifully just. I think he is the only younger critic whom Empson genuinely admired. Speaking as a traumatised old man, I regret his decision to publish the book on Bob Dylan. Not not that I think Dylan is execrable. Some of the melodies stay long in the mind. (laughs) but because as a verse writer he is merely not good enough to merit even the protracted suspended animation of a great mind that in addition to the major works on Milton, Keats, Tennyson and Eliot has also conceived and presented such formidable and formative essays as those on Gower, Dunn, Wordsworth, Beddoes, and Lowell. When Ricks is at his best, and he is so more often than the rest of us, he can move the axis of the earth with his little finger. But Dylan is not an axis. He is a marvellously accomplished skimmer and has been since he first skimmed his effective stage name from the name of a famous Welsh poet. What is needed from a contemporary critical mind that has both depth and reach of a capacity that few have at any given time but which Ricks has demonstrated superabundantly is an analysis of how the skim of contemporary culture relates to, is inextricably a part of, the gigantic scam of our times the banker's scam, the Blair Brown scam. The coalition scam, the big society scam, the education scam, the national happiness scam, and gilded honour shamefully misplaced. Intrinsic value is perhaps only a figure of speech but it is a meaningful figure of speech and when one speaks today of a total destruction of intrinsic value, people generally know what you mean. Thank you.